Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, Father. We know that there are some passages that are easier, there are some passages that are harder. Father, pray that you give us insights, help us by your Holy Spirit, as we were hearing about earlier, Father, to understand uh, your words. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're starting a new series uh, this week in the book of Hosea. We're going to go all the way through uh, the book of Hosea over the next few weeks. Uh, and to start with, I've got a, a question really about the, the whole book. Um, what do you think of as the perfect love story? When somebody says to you, think of a love story, what would it be? Perhaps it's Romeo and Juliet, you know, a tragic story of star-crossed lovers. Perhaps it's Mr. Darcy and Jane Bennett, the triumph of love over pride and prejudice. Perhaps it's one of those rom-coms that you get where you, you know, insert uh, George Clooney or uh, you know, Hugh Grant in here with Sandra Bullock and, and whoever. But I guess if you're thinking about the classic love story, it's not Homer. Uh, Homer. It's like Brangelina, isn't it? <laughs> Hosea and Goma. Uh, <laughs> Homer. Uh, yeah, Hosea and Goma. It doesn't strike you as a classic love story, does it? It's got prostitutes. It's got slavery in it. It's got weird children's names. It doesn't have the hallmarks, really, of a classic love story. And yet we'll see over this morning and over the next few weeks that actually this is, it's actually a greater love story than we've ever known. The book of Hosea is set in the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that split apart after the time of Solomon. And it's set just before its destruction in 722 BC. Hosea, the prophet here who's writing the book, his lifetime spanned the, the last days, really, of the kingdom, and several kings in Judah and in Israel as well. Jeroboam's mentioned as the king of Israel, and there were other kings, but they had very short periods. Uh, Israel tended to go through its kings quite quickly, as they often get assassinated and replaced by someone else. But Jeroboam, actually, was part of a dynasty that had lasted for four generations, the dynasty of Jehu, who had destroyed Ahab's dynasty before him. That'll come uh, in, into play as we go through the book. But he prophesied in relatively affluent times. So it did vary up and down a bit through his ministry. There were times, though, when the nation was in name worshipping God, but actually in practice they were anyone's. And he foretold the destiny of the nation and what was going to happen to the nation of Israel. But not only did he foretell the destiny of the nation, he forelived it. And we're going to see here that God asked him to be a visual aid, a living visual aid, for what will happen to his nature. So we're going to have a look at his life first, especially his married life, to Goma, Goma's story. So look uh, with me at uh, 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom. By forsaking the Lord. And then verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. First of all, we're going to see a bit about Gomer's marriage to Hosea. God tells Hosea to marry a wife of Hordom. Now, there's some dispute over to exactly what that means, but I think really we should take this at face value. Hosea marries, and I'll choose my word carefully, a whore. Because that's the word our passage uses. A, a prostitute. 
Possibly a temple prostitute, but more likely a common prostitute. Uh, It could be a temple prostitute because although we often associate religion with chastity, with sort of sexual purity, religion in Hosea's day was actually associated with prostitution and promiscuity. Baal, who you'll hear mentioned all the way through, was a fertility god. And the way that they worshipped Baal uh, was to go to a temple and do things associated with fertility, namely sex. The way that you worshipped Baal was to have sex with a temple prostitute. And that meant that actually prostitution was part and parcel of life in those days. We might find that quite shocking, but that was what religion worked like uh, in the pagan worlds. But for Gomer, it doesn't seem like that she was a temple prostitute, because it seems in chapter 2 that she's in it for what she can get. She's really in it to get things from her lovers. But we'll see throughout the book that prostitution and, and religion are mixed all the way through the book, and it's partly because... We have this sort of mixture in the land at the time. So to be pagan was to be involved with sexual immorality too. But Hosea takes Gomer as his wife. And we're told next to nothing about Gomer. But Hosea, interestingly, knows where to go, doesn't he? She's obviously got a reputation. And Gomer has three children with Hosea. We'll look at the names in a few moments' time. Uh, one at least we know is his. Jezreel, we're told that she bore him, Jezreel. She conceived and bore uh, him. So down there in uh, verse 3. So she went and took, he went and took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. With the other children, it just says she conceived and bore children. So it's possible, actually, the other two children are children of affairs, uh, possibly of her own prostitution during the time when she's married to uh, Hosea. And that really brings us to what the heart, the heart of go, what's going on. Adultery. Gomer runs after other lovers. That's what we see. We see it mingled in the language of chapter 2 and chapter 3. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Literally, that phrase is there, she's loved by a friend. It's as though it's somebody who Hosea knows, it's a, a companion. You imagine in those days the places weren't particularly that big, the cities weren't that large. People would know each other. Seemingly, she's attached herself to someone in that town and is receiving things in trade for sexual favours. If you look at verse 3, verse 5, uh, sorry, 2, verse 5. Uh, <clears throat> for she said, I will go after my lovers. Who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. So basically, she's attached herself to another man, even though she's married to Hosea. And she's virtually like a slave, trading sexual favours for food and for drink. She's left her husband and he's using her body, really, to get whatever she wants. And it may seem quite shocking, but I've actually seen something similar to this happen. Uh, to somebody that my parents knew. Uh, years ago, uh, she was happily married to her husband, sort of middle class, and uh, ended up getting mixed up with psychological problems and drugs and, and all sorts of things. And by the end of it, she ended up estranged from her husband and sleeping with drug dealers in exchange for drugs. Even had children by them. Not quite a slave, but close to that. And that's really the position that Gomer is in. Chasing after lovers to 
uh, see what she can get, but really she's ended up in a total mess. And all the way through this, Gomer remains married to Hosea, yet she's offering herself to other men. Can you imagine what that must be like for Hosea? A prophet, and yet his wife is out there playing the whore. It must have been atrocious. So what comes next should strike us as a big surprise. What we actually see next is restoration. Restoration. If you were Hosea, would you take Gomer back? Well, that's exactly what God tells him to do in 3 verse 1. It's a sad occasion, isn't it? She's got herself into so much trouble that Homer, uh, Gomer is bought back by Hosea. Has to be bought. He has to buy his own wife. He pays for her probably about the price of a slave, made up with goods because he can't afford the full amount. So there in verse 2. So I bought her with 15 shekels of silver and a Homer and Lesheth of barley. That's almost as though he's not rich enough to even pay for his wife. He has to give goods. He doesn't have enough money. Imagine the humiliation of having to go to your wife's lover and pay him to get her back. Imagine the looks at the city gate for Hosea. Imagine the jeers of the peers that he's got behind his back. It's so sad, isn't it, that it's come to this. But there is hope, though. There's hints, as we'll see in a few moments' time, in chapter 2, that she's begun to realise that things actually weren't that bad with Hosea. And that actually things are very bad in the position that she's in. And there's hope as well, because Hosea is willing to take her back. So in the interim, he sets some rules. If you look at verse 3 of chapter 3. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I shall be with you. Seems that Hosea is setting down what will happen. Hosea will take her back, but she's to put away her whoring. She's not to sleep with anyone. And it seems even though by the language that she's not even going to sleep with Hosea. And he too will not be sleeping with her or anyone else. We'll see the significance again in a few moments' time. But that's really where the story finishes. It's a little bit unsatisfying in that way that we don't find out what happens beyond that. But the truth is that what we see in this is that God is using the relationship of Gomer and Hosea as an illustration to his own relationship with Israel. So that brings us to our second point. Israel's story. And again, we start with marriage. The marriage of God and Israel, if you like, is uh, the covenant that's made at Mount Sinai, the the agreement that God makes through Moses with the people in the wilderness. And a covenant is a bit like a marriage. In in fact, we speak, don't we, of the marriage covenant, because it's so closely related. An agreement, a contract between two people. It's as though by talking about Israel as his wife, he's saying, I'm wedded to you by this covenant. I'm married to you. It's as though on Mount Sinai he was saying, I take thee, Israel, to be my lawful wedded people. So God became a husband to Israel. They entered into a covenant together. But just like Hosea married a woman of whoredom, so God married a people of whoredom. The name of the children in chapter 1 show us that God is displeased with his people, the way that they played the law. Look at verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu 
for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Jezreel is the site where Jehu massacred uh, the descendants, family and many other people associated with Ahab. And really what it's saying here is that what Jehu, the ancestor of Jeroboam that's mentioned there, did to Ahab, God is going to do to Israel. It's saying that that massacre of God is going to be repeated, but brought on Israel rather than on Ahab. There's one slight issue with that, uh, really, is that actually God told Jehu to wipe out Ahab. Ahab, as if you know any of the stories of, uh, of the kings, you know that Ahab was a very, very bad king. And that God had actually ordained that he would be wiped out. But now it almost seems like God is displeased with it. Uh, so, you know, I will, uh, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. Well, some people think it could be that he went beyond his remit and killed more people than he should do. That doesn't really seem to be the, the thrust of it. So if you could just for a few moments, if you have a look at 2 Kings chapter 9, could somebody call out the page numbers for uh, 2 Kings 9? Sorry, what's that, Nick? 347. 347 in the thin thin Bible. Thick Thick Bible, okay. Anyone on the thing? 179. So let me read to you 2 Kings 9, 6 to 10. We'll see what's going on. So he arose and went into the house. This is Elisha. And the young man poured oil on... uh, Sorry, it's not Elisha. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head, saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond and free in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And like the house of Bashar, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel. And none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. So this was a servant of the prophet talking to Jehu. But we're told at the end of it that God is pleased. So 2 Kings chapter 10, just over the page, probably 28 to 31. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, but Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. <coughs> so we see there partly why Jeroboam the second is on the throne, that's the fourth generation uh, down from uh, Jehu. But we see that God is actually pleased with what Jehu has done. Uh, he even mentions elsewhere that he knocks down the temple of Baal and turns it into a public latrine. Uh, he turns a temple into a toilet. So it's better to think, really, as we think back to Hosea, that it's not that God is going to punish him for the blood of Jezreel, but with the blood of Jezreel. That's another way of translating it. It's as though the zeal that Jehu had to destroy the corrupt king and the worship of Baal 
Well, God is going to flip that on Israel. So the purification that took place at Jezreel will happen again as God puts an end to the kingdom of Israel. That's what Jezreel shows us, the child. We also have the child no mercy. So back again in Hosea uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So the steadfast love that God has shown to Israel in the past will be withdrawn. The word there where mercy is is a tender word. It means to caress, to, to hold, to deal with someone kindly. But God is saying there will be none of this now. God is no longer going to have his tender loving relationship with them. Forgiveness is not going to be forthcoming as it was before in the past. And we all know, don't we, that forgiveness is a necessity in any relationship. Otherwise it will fall apart under the weight of a thousand offences. The scorecard will get too high and the relationship will fold. But it's saying here that God is sort of going to set the meter running on their sin. He's not going to forgive them. No more mercy. And then the third child is not my people. Verses 8 and 9. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. You are not my people, and I am not your God. This almost sounds like a statement of divorce. You are not my wife, I am not your husband. This is how God is feeling towards his people. But it's also the judgment that he's pronouncing on his people. They are no longer his people. If you like, it's as though God has started divorce proceedings against his people. Why? Because of adultery, spiritual adultery. The whole of the second chapter really is a rebuke of Israel, put in the form of a message from a children, from children to their mother. They're told to plead with their mother. Do you see that there in verse 2? Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she may put away her whoring from before her face and her adultery from between her breasts. They're to plead with her. It could be translated rebuke or warn as well. Really, God is speaking to his people, isn't he? If they don't change their ways, then what will God do? Well, verse 3, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Shocking stuff, isn't it? God will strip them naked and turn them into a wilderness. He'll return them to the time when they weren't a nation. To the wilderness where they wandered for 40 years. But this time no miraculous protection uh, from the, uh, no miraculous provision of water. No protection from the sun on their bodies. It's as though this time he's going to leave them in the desert to die. So what is it that's so bad that they've done? We'll have a look at 2 verse 5. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, and my oil and my drink. They've gone after other gods. They've gone after other lovers. Instead of trusting in God alone, they've hedged their backs. And that might not seem so shocking in a way, but God is saying it's like adultery. It's like prostitution. They've chased after other gods. They've indulged in worshipping the Baals and other deities. But they are betrothed to God alone. And just like a marriage relationship is exclusive, 
So their relationship is exclusive. But they ditch God to go after other gods. Who they think will give them more of what they want in more abundance. Bread, water, wool, flax, oil and drink. They thought that the Baals, the original gods of the area before they came, were still in charge of the land. Worship God, yes, but maybe a few sacrifices to Baal. That's not so bad, is it? Better harvest at the end of it. Or a visit to a prostitute in, in the temple of Baal. That's not so bad. It might mean abundant crops, people fed, more children. But the irony of this is exposed in verse 8, isn't it? And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which she used for the Baal. The irony is that God was giving her this stuff all along. And what did she use it for? To worship Baal. It would be like if a, a man sent a, his wife a parcel at work containing expensive jewellery, but no note, just assuming that his wife would know it was from him. But the wife instead assumes that it's from her work colleague, rather than her husband. She invites him out on a date, and wears the jewellery from him and hides it from her husband. Using the good things that God has given them for other people. But it's even worse with Israel, because there was a note. God had told them that that's what he was doing. But Israel chose to ignore it instead. Verse 13 sums it up quite nicely, doesn't it? The end of verse 13. Uh, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burnt offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewellery and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. She's forgotten her husband. She's forgotten her God. And because of this, they're facing God's intervention. In 2, 6 and, six and 7, we see that God will hedge them up. They won't be able to chase after their lovers anymore. He'll frustrate their attempts. In 2, 9, we see that he'll take away the blessings that they thought that they were getting from Baal. And then in 2, 10 and 10 to 12, God will shame them in front of their lovers. Nakedness is still a way to shame people. If you think of back to the Second World War with women in France being paraded in their underwear through the town for collaborating, should be shamed, paraded through the town. The festivals that she's had will stop. Think of what those festivals must be like if they're mingled with the worship of Baal. God is literally going to spoil their fun. The wine and figs that they've enjoyed will stop. And God is calling time on their idolatrous love parties. It's like the parents have come home uh, to the party and they've switched on the lights and turned off the music. So what's God going to do now that he's come home, if you like, now that he's warning them? Is he going to destroy them, obliterate them? Well, surprisingly, no. Again, you get a restoration. Perhaps just as scandalous as Hosea taking Gomer back, God will take Israel back. And he'll do it with love. Have a look at 2.14-16. to 16. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her uh, her vineyards and make the valley of anchor a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Israel. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. 
It's like he's going to take them back on some early dates. He's going to take her back into the wilderness. Instead of turning her into a wilderness, he's going to take her back where they, they first met, if you like. It's a bit like for Caroline and myself. Uh, you know, I proposed to Caroline the Truckaloo uh, near Lancaster, quite a good location because it's just down the road at the time. So if you wanted to be romantic, we could go for a walk along the Crookaloon. Or, you know, if we wanted to go for a romantic date, we just went back to the first place we went on a date. Pizza Margarita. Uh, that was where, where we went. So, you know, you want to be romantic, you go on those early dates again, don't you? I don't know what it is for you guys, you probably tell me later. But here we see God sort of taking Israel back to the early times. Back before the trouble with the Baal started. The Valley of Ankur that it mentions was where... Achan, uh, who was an idolater, buried, uh, was buried after he stole idols. And it's so saying, well, that where it all started to go wrong as you enter the land, well, now I'm going to turn that into a door of hope. It's going to be a good time. God will woo them back. But how can God say this? Because he's also said that he's going to wipe them out as a nation. And actually Israel as a nation will be ended by the end of Hosea's ministry. They will never again be a northern kingdom. More than that, though, he, he makes it even bigger, doesn't he? So, 1 verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel should be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, you are children of the living God. He's promising a golden age, if you like. More numerous than the sand of the seashore. 3 verse 5. Afterwards the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king shall come, and in fear to the Lord and to the goodness in the latter days. He's saying there's going to be this amazing time, and David's going to be king, it's going to be wonderful. But how, how can that happen when they never even returned from exile? Well, the New Testament tells us, the Bible, you see, not only gives us prophecies, it gives us the fulfilment of those prophecies, it tells us how to see them. On the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there, there's uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 22 to 26, which picks up this prophecy from Hosea. <clears throat> this is what it says. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of his mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called sons of the living God. See, the book of Romans tells us this is fulfilled as the Gentiles come in, as the nations come in. This is fulfilled as that all the nations come under one head. Probably far greater than Hosea knew. Actually, what's prophesied here is not just Judah and Israel, but Judah and the whole world under one head. Christ, the son of David, the one of David's line, the greater David. So the glorious age that it speaks of is the age when Jew and Gentile will be under one head. What does it say about those days? Have a look at 2, at 16 uh, to 18. And in those days, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, na- by name no more. 
And I will make a covenant for them, a covenant on the day, on that day, with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Do you see that? It's promising a kingdom of peace, of righteousness, of justice, of steadfast love and mercy. It's promising the kingdom of God. This is looking forward to the coming of Christ, to the advent of the church. But before that, they will have this time where there's no king and no benefits to be enjoyed. That's what's mentioned in the passage and is shown by Hosea's not sleeping with his wife for a while. But it's saying the time will come after this period, this, this gap. Which brings us nicely to our last point. Our story, more briefly. Marriage. We don't live under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. The marriage of God and Israel morphs into the marriage of Christ and the church. We are betrothed to Christ in the new covenant. We're married to him. God has made us his people. God has sowed us in the land. We are his people. He is our God and we are betrothed to him. But because of that, we face many of the dangers that Hosea faced and Israel faced in those days. So how can we have the same problems? Well, we too can be guilty of adultery. It's the same in principle, different in practice in our culture, isn't it? I mean, in many cultures around the world, the threat of idolatry really is there with physical idols. Adding them to their devotional to Christ, they're a bit on the side. But we Westerners can be just as idolatrous. It's just that the idols and the gods of our culture are not made of wood and stone. Idolatry is putting anything or anyone above Christ. Or ascribing to others what has come from Christ. As Israel did with the gifts that God had lavished upon her. And we can be guilty of that, can't we? Putting other things before God. Believing we have things because of our own hard work, our own cleverness, our own self-sufficiency. We forget that God is the giver of all good things. We can also be guilty like them of mixing other things into Christianity. Like a mixture of Christianity and other religions. And you want to say, well no we don't. We don't do that, do we? But we forget that in the West, actually, our predominant religion is atheism. And there's a danger, actually, as a church, that we adopt the practices and values of atheism, but mix them with Christianity. We don't think of them as being another religion, because we just think that that's our culture. Probably in the same way that the Israelites thought it was just part of their culture. The problem is that it's really hard to see your own culture. I know when I, I went to live in France for a year, I suddenly realised there were some weird things about your own society. But the Christianity that we have is not disincultured. We haven't sort of got a, a pure form that's not affected by the world around us. You notice that, don't you, when you go to other countries? So if you went to Africa, uh, it, you know, the jungle, you sometimes see churches where everyone's dressed in a shirt and tie. Well, that's because the culture's been exported with the religion. We don't think of it like that. But you can sort of see it when you see it in another culture. And it's hard to see because the culture has infiltrated the gospel. Because all of us are influenced by our culture, aren't we? Now, culture is not bad, but culture is not above the gospel. We must express the gospel in culturally appropriate ways, 
But we must not let the culture change the gospel. So just as we sort of get near to the end, what are some of the idols of our atheistic culture? Idols that we might have in our hearts without knowing. I've done some thinking this week. It's been hard to see because I've got them too. Let me just give you a few suggestions. The God of entertainment is an idol for us. So think, the atheist says, we're a cosmic accident, there's no afterlife, therefore, we should try and have as much fun as possible. We don't believe in the first half, do we? That we're an accident. But do we adopt that conclusion that life is really just about having as much fun as possible? It exposes itself as an idol when we start to think about our faith. Should our faith be entertaining? Should Sunday morning be entertaining? Should this sermon be entertaining? Now don't hear me wrong, those things should be engaging, but are they there for entertainment? If they're not fun, what should you do? Go somewhere else? Try something else? But God is not Robbie Williams. God is not there to entertain us. And it exposes itself in how we spend our time too, doesn't it? What do we seek in our evenings? Godliness or entertainment? It's just things that we, we can miss, can't we? Another God, the God of instant, uh, instantan- God of instantaneousness will go. Instantaneity? Instant- instantaneousness. If that took a while, ironically, didn't it? Uh, but we live uh, for everything now, don't we? Think of, what, again, what the atheists would say. We have one life and nothing after it, therefore we need everything now. Uh, Queen, one of my favourite bands, uh, sang something. I want it all, I want it all, I want it now. Speed is a virtue in our culture. Uh, you might have heard the, the poem, I'm going to change it slightly. Only one life will soon be passed, so get everything to be really fast. If things don't give us instant results, we think that they're bad. But the Christian life is not a super-fast fibre connection to maturity and holiness. It's a dial-up, if you're old enough to remember what dial-up connections were like. There are several times when the signal will go and you'll have to start again. But that's one of the reasons why God the Holy Spirit gives us patience as a fruit of the Spirit. I think that's great. I want patience. I want it now. (laughs) That's the problem, isn't it? The slow and steady work of leaning, learning Christ as we hear his word and pray is slow. And our culture doesn't value that. And there's a danger that we ditch things because we just want the instantaneous stuff. Third God, last God, the God of consumerism. So the atheist would say, there is no God, therefore I am master of my own destiny and I make my own choices. Again, we misbelieve the first part, but do we buy the second part? We put Christ in the marketplace of our life and ask him to compete with other things. We choose churches sometimes on the basis of our individual wants and preferences. That sounds incredibly normal, doesn't it? But that's part of the problem that actually is fed into our culture. I remember when I was at university, they had something called a church search. Uh, so you'd, you'd get all the different leaders of the different churches standing up and explaining what their church was like. And it really felt quite uncomfortable so, you know, you get one person would stand up and say, well, our church uh, is uh, modern and, you know, we've got modern music and we preach the word. And then the next person would stand and say, well, our church is modern and we've got modern music and we preach the word and we've got free lunches for students. And the next person would stand up and say, well, we've got, uh, and it, it would sort of become a competition. 
But isn't it funny that probably we do similar things in our own head with things, with things to do with church and Christianity? We don't ask what we can give to a church, we ask what we can get from it. And it's a sign of our consumerist society, even filtering into our Christianity. So the fight as Christians then is not to stay as we are. Because actually, we're not where we should be. We're already infiltrated by the culture. So in churches, misunderstandings, and we just stay as we are, we're okay. But actually, it shows itself, doesn't it? The fight really is, is to reform in the light of the gospel. The motto of the Reformation was semper referendum, not very good with my words, semper referamanda, always reforming. So the fight against idolatry in the church is a fight to keep aligning ourselves with the word, to keep reading it and getting rid of the idolatries that already exists. One of the clues actually that we have idols as a church is that we won't change. You know, the building becomes an idol, the hymn book becomes an idol. And if the church changes them, well, they're not being true to the gospel. So what is the gospel then? Well, it's Jesus plus hymn book, Jesus plus building. And we've made it into that mixing again, that idolatry. So is there any hope? Restoration. I said that the age that we live in is is now. And that's true, but it's also now and not yet. You know, my diagram, the overlap of the ages, we live in the now and not yet. The time is now and it's not now. We await a time when idols are done away with, once and for all. When God stands supreme with no competition. We await the day of Jezreel, when there will be real purification, destruction for the wicked, freedom for the followers of Christ. We look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, when faith becomes sight, when betrothal becomes consummation, when our idolatrous hearts are tamed to sin no more. We wait for that time when we're in wedding garments of pure white, not of our own, but given by God. A bride beautifully adorned for our husband. And that truly will be the greatest love story ever. The one who gave his life for his bride, only to take it back up and marry her. A love so great that it not only takes us as we are, but it changes us into who we should be. Who we want to be, a bride pleasing to her husband. So may God grant us the strength to live for him, to please him, As we await that day, may God give us the strength to fend off any suitors, any gods, any idols that stop us living for him. Let's pray.